Well, my title tonight is very simply The Nearness of God. The Nearness of God. Our text is found in Acts chapter 17 and verse 27. That they should seek the Lord. If happily they might, or haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. It's a aspect of God and who he is. The nearness of God. This is not some mystical way of thinking of God. This is a truth that's revealed throughout the pages of the Bible, that God is near to all who call upon him, to all who seek him. In fact, as we read in Psalm 139, you cannot escape from the presence of God. God is everywhere. He is a spirit. And therefore we can speak of God as being near. Well, Paul applies this thought and his argument put very simply is this. If God is so near, when it comes to seeking the Lord, to finding him, to having peace with him, to knowing his forgiveness, then for those that desire him, this can be a reality. This is not some chance thing. This is not something far-fetched. God is so near. We can almost reach out and touch him. Not in a mystical way, not in a physical way, but that's the way God is described. He is near. Well, the Apostle Paul in this chapter is on his second missionary journey. He's been throughout Greece. He's traveled to Thessalonica and he comes to Athens. And as he always did, as the Romans said, carpe deum. Seize the day. He looks around him and he is surrounded by statues and idols, many of them shaped in white marble, beautiful, beautiful, lifelike creatures, some of them of human appearance, some of them of animal appearance, some of them a combination of both. And he looked at them. He wasn't marveling at their art, which was beautiful, something to behold. But he was shocked, and he was grieved in his heart. He could not understand that this city of so much culture, sophistication, and intellectualism was so dumb and so thoughtless that they could be lowered to be worshipping stone and gold and silver and stone. This city that was once the center of the Greek empire, it had now fallen and it was under the control of the Roman Empire. 250,000 people living in this one city. And as he walked the streets, went to the Areopagus and stood on Mars Hill, statues, statues, 
as far as the eye could see. Temples, altars, idols, statues. He surveyed the scene and his heart was appalled, hurt. How could humanity come to this position? How could humanity have turned the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, turned God into something made with hands? So he said he was grieved in spirit, seeing a city wholly given over to idolatry. Idolatry. Somebody told me this week, you look at the Ten Commandments and you see the one about idol worship and it's one of the longest. Why would that be? Because God knew that the world would be given over to idolatry down through the years. We think it a strange thing in this country. There's not so many places like Athens was then. And yet we have idols not made with hands. We shall think a little bit about that. And he looks around the streets and he says, you're too superstitious. It doesn't quite mean what we use that term for today. It means you're too fearful of all your gods, the gods that you can touch that are powerless. And yet you're frightened of a stone statue. You're too religious. You're focused upon what you can touch and what you can see with your hands. And then he comes, verse 23, and he says, Do you know, I noticed that you had one God, one idol, and in case you had forgotten to make an idol for some God, maybe there was a gap, a gap in your repertoire. You'd thought of the moon God and the sun God and this God and that God, but there was a gap. So you gave that God a name of no name. You said, we'll call it the no-name God. And I saw your altar, and it had this sign above it to the no-name God, the unknown God. And then there's this play on words that comes across quite well in our translation to the God that you don't know the name of, who you worship without really knowing, because you don't know anything about this God, that's why you call it the unknown God. It was just one more God to cover a gap, just in case, just in case they haven't covered something. Well, what does Paul say? Why? Why? Why even make a God without a name? who you can't really worship because you don't know anything about this God. You don't know what he likes and dislikes. You don't know what he looks like. And so you've just put up that name. Well, I want to speak of three things tonight. Speak about some of the problems with idolatry and some of the advantages. And then to contrast it 
with the extraordinary difference. With idols and celebrities compared to the one true living God who is altogether the opposite in every possible way. And then the question that's really asked in verse 27, how can I know God? How can I know God if he's so near? If I can almost touch him, how can I know him personally, in a real way? Well, that's our three thoughts tonight. Let's say something about the idols of the time that Paul lived in and some of the modern idols that this country is obsessed by. We even have these TV programs now with celebrity idol worship in the characters, even in the names of the shows. Don't ask me afterwards, I don't know what they're called. They all seem to jumble up in my mind. What are the problems with idols? Well, there's some good things about idols. You can see an idol. You can admire them. You can gaze at them. You can look at their beauty. If you have a celebrity to worship, oh, you can see how smart they are, how well they dress, what cars they drive, how cool they are. There's some advantages of idols and celebrities. You can choose which idols to put in your life, which ones to have at home in your living room in Athens. You can choose like a designer chooses their clothes, whether you like red or pink, what material to have your idols made out of, oh, that's an advantage. If you like one, you can choose that, and of course you can get rid of one. If you don't like an idol, just dump it. Go for another one. Choose a different music group, a different rap artist a different footballer, a different team. Choose someone else. Oh, it's, there's quite some advantages. You can get one, get another one, you can get rid of one, you can play the field. And you can choose those that suit your taste and your preferences and your genre and your style. Of course, there's some disadvantages as well, aren't there? When it comes to celebrities and idols, they don't speak. You don't really know what they say. And if they do speak, sometimes it's just made up. It's not to you. It's not real. It's not personal. In fact, an idol or a celebrity, they're so distant, they're unknowable. The ancient Idols, they were immoral. Some of them you had to sacrifice children before. Take the limbs of the children off and offer them to placate the idols, to make them peaceful, so that you wouldn't have bad karma, if that's the right term. And some of them were so cruel and so greedy, you had to feed them with money and food day after day. I've seen it in some countries. 
the poorest people going to give the children's food to an idol and the child goes hungry because the priest says feed feed give give what a contrast to the one true god of heaven the god who loves to speak 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 that's what god does he reveals himself the bible full of words from god directly from him personally i read the bible and it's as though there's nobody else in the world god is speaking just to my heart and my mind telling me of my sin telling me of the way that i should live showing me the way saying this is the way walk therein how different god is god can be known and he's knowable and he's accessible and he's near not like the idols distant unknowable not like the celebrities that you've never really met you don't know them you don't know what goes on in their lives and when we do we wish we didn't know and god his words and everything about him is pure and holy the more you know of god He's more pure than purer eyes can see. That's why the Bible is called the Holy Bible, because every word of it is pure and perfect. What a difference. And God, is he cruel and greedy? No. He gives and gives and gives again. He's full of grace and mercy. We were thinking this morning when the world was in a mess when he could have written off the whole of humanity he holds out grace grace to all who would find it to all who would seek it we see it most in the lord jesus christ who is full of grace and truth no the problem paul says your idols are unknown they're unknowable and you're just groping in the dark trying to reach out trying to touch that's what it says in verse 27 if by chance you might palpate that's what the greek says you might touch you might feel you might put your hands on and then he says but god isn't like that god is near god can be known sometimes we hear of those awful cases and they end up in court where somebody has stalked a celebrity for years and years they followed their every move they don't know them the famous public life person the celebrity whoever it is they hate it their lives become a hell and a misery because they have somebody so obsessed it reveals a number of things reveals that within men and women there is that desire to worship to touch to get near to somebody something 
even if it's a statue. What is an idol? An idol is just simply defined as something that's a replacement for God. Something or someone that we put in the place of God. Anything physical. We can't worship God in a physical way. We can't touch God. That would be to limit him. Just turn with me to a psalm. I'm sure some of you might know where I'm turning. Psalm 115. This is what God's word says about idols. Let's read from verse 4. Psalm 115 and verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusts in them. Do you trust in a celebrity? Do you take your joy and satisfaction and spend much of your time with a celebrity, a replacement for God? Or dare I say a picture? Something made with God's hands? What does the psalmist say in verse 9? O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. What a difference there is in God. Not made by hands. Not one that we can see with human eyes. That would be to limit God. If we were to make God, if we were to have a picture of God, it would be so pathetic. How can an infinite, eternal God who we cannot add to, we cannot take away from, how can he be described and pictured in a way that our eyes could even look at? Oh no, God is so different. That's what Paul is really arguing in these verses, these extraordinary verses. And then he turns the attention. He's going to bang the hammer. Look at him in verse 27. He says... You need to seek the Lord. You need to seek the God of heaven, the God who is the creator, the God who is the judge, the God who has lived and died through Christ and risen again, the God who has given you breath. But how can we know God? If I can't palpate him, if I can't touch him, if I can't grope after God, as the Athenians assisted, insisted upon doing, how do I know that he is there? And how can I find him? And he now turns and says, but God is near. How do we know God is near? We think in physical terms, the Eiffel Tower. Everybody knows it's in Paris, or it was. 
When I last looked, the Taj Mahal is in a city called Agra in India. I don't think it moves. We think of place and time, but God isn't like that. God is outside of time and he's not bound by place. God is a spirit. So we can't define him in material terms. And Paul says, you've got it all wrong. You're so intelligent, you're so cultured. And yet, you're groping in the dark. You're groveling like, dare I say, a blind man stumbling. You're trying to feel after God. But you'll never touch him physically. But God is different. He's near. The Lord Jesus Christ sometimes spoke in very human language. He said he would go to prepare a house and his house would have many mansions, many rooms. God isn't limited to a literal house. The Bible speaks about the dwelling place of God. and We think of it in a finite way. Where is God? What does the place where God lives, look like God is a spirit. But God can be known. Do you know where heaven is? It's where God is. Do you know where hell is? It's where God is not. My friends tonight, if you don't seek and find the Lord, your eternity will not be spent with God. It will be spent away from God. That's what this is all about. That's what Paul is arguing. You need, instead of your religiosity, your superstition, your unknown God, you need to seek after the Lord. And it won't be by chance that you grope in the dark because he says at the end of verse 27, he is not far from every one of us. Let's just think of what that means. Just to quote a few of the verses of God's word. We read in Psalm 139, if, if I go to heaven, I, I can't escape from God. If I go down to hell or death, God is there. God is everywhere. You try and run from God, you'll never, ever succeed. But God is near to all who believe that he is, those that by faith diligently search after him, Hebrews tells us. And he's near, Psalm 145, to those that pray to him and call upon him. He's near to those that have humble hearts and a contrite spirit, Psalm 34. That psalm also says, He's near to those who are broken-hearted. Are you broken-hearted tonight? If you're not broken-hearted, you're proud. You're arrogant. You don't believe you need God. But the Lord draws very near to all who are humble-hearted and broken-hearted and feel their need of God. And those who are anxious and fearful tonight. 
If you have worries in your heart or in your mind, Philippians 4 verse 5 tells us that God draws near to those who are anxious and fearful, who call out to him. And one more, James chapter 4, those who have clean hands and a clean heart, those who've turned from their sin and gone to God and say, I'm a sinner, forgive me. I turn from my sin and God draws near and you feel his presence and you feel his touch and his help and you feel forgiveness and you feel that guilt removed. That's what the nearness of God is. That's what God does when we call out to him by prayer, when we draw near to the cross and we see our sin laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life and who died instead of me for my sin because he loved me and died for me and gave himself for me. And all who draw near with that heart, God is near to them. He be not far from every one of us. Is God near to you tonight? Are you seeking to draw near to him or are you running away from him? Oh, the nearness of God. God will draw near to all who ask him to come to him tonight and you will know peace and you will know forgiveness and you will know his help and broken hearts will be made whole and humble hearts will be lifted up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, O oh Lord, we believe in God. We draw near by faith. We trust in the word of God. And every time that we come sincerely, we come humbly, we come leaving our sin behind, we feel the presence of God. And we know his forgiveness and burdens are lifted at Calvary. Oh Lord, help us tonight to know his nearness to each one of us and his help and his touch. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.